Hello, Tim Williams here. I'm the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Thanks for choosing to listen to one of our archived episodes from our early days of launching the show. Although I love the overall content of these episodes, I will say the recording quality was not always the best as the show was still evolving and I was learning to record and edit pretty much on the fly. I believe the sound quality and editing has improved from season to season, so be sure to check out more great episodes in our more recent seasons. I hope you enjoy this episode and that it rekindles all those warm and fuzzy nostalgic feels. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Hello movie viewers and movie lovers, my name is Tim Williams and I'm your host for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast, where we talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter what flick we choose from week to week, we'll have a lot of fun sharing memories, discussing our favorite scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. As the brainchild of an up-and-coming screenwriter, an established movie director, and the mastermind between Motown Records' Barry Gordy, a low-budget niche film mixed martial arts, heavily synthesized pop songs, supernatural adventure, Bruce Lee, and over-the-top comedy that has surprised and entertained audiences for decades after its initial box office release. The chart-topping soundtrack was just as much a part of the film as the main characters, but far from being a flimsy visual vehicle to hang some songs on, it found a way to use stylish silliness and insightful martial arts concepts to become a story of hope and purpose. If you can't answer with confidence, who's the master, then prepare to kiss the converse as Ron West and I discuss Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon from 1985. And that's what we're doing this week. So I've got Ron, Bruce Leroy West as my guest co-host again. Welcome back, Ron. I think I would, uh, I'm, I'm maybe the show enough of, uh, of this ensemble, uh, <laughs> sir, but, um, I thank you for this one. Oh yeah. I was upset at you for making me watch RoboCop, <laughs> but Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon is one of the funnest bad movies yeah. that you can watch. And the acting is bad, Yes, but it is so fun. It is. And I... Well, let's we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. So let's go go with it. stick with our normal beginning. When did you see the Last Dragon for the very first time? 
Saw The Last Dragon uh, at the movie theater in Bluefield, West Virginia. Uh, just knew it was, uh, you know, a little bit of a, uh, a, a karate or kung fu uh, movie mm-hmm. or when it was coming out. You know, at that time, um, on Saturday, you know, Saturday mornings you had cartoons, but then Saturday afternoon you had kung fu theater. Right, right. Had all the uh, really bad kung fu uh movies that would come on TV and in between playing outside, I would watch those. Uh, of course, everybody got the Bruce Lee reference mm-hmm. and uh, was excited to see this. Saw this with a buddy of mine who was absolutely in love with Vanity. <laughs> he had a big poster of Vanity hanging out on his wall. I was never impressed with Vanity uh, in any way, shape or form. Right. But he was uh, obsessed with her for a short period of time. So uh, we went to the movie theater together and saw that. A lot of fun. Enjoyed it uh, immensely then. And I have probably seen that over the years. I've seen this movie probably, I don't know, 15, 20 times. Okay. So when was the last time you saw it before watching it for the podcast? I watched it about six months ago. Oh, okay. <laughs> I watched it so, about six months ago. Still uh, pretty did fresh. did not seek it out, but I was uh, flipping channels and saw so I was getting ready to come on. Right. I, Usually, I like to jump onto things that have already come on, right? Except, except for Harry Potter and uh, Lord of the Rings, I'll jump into them at mm-hmm. any point, right? Right. But uh, saw that it was literally starting in like two minutes, and I said, "Oh, <laughs> Last Dragon, here we go." Cool. Yeah, I I saw it in the theater. Uh, I actually remember which theater I saw it in, and I pro- I remember it being, or my memory it being like a Saturday afternoon, like it was a Saturday matinee type of movie, um, and I think I went with like a couple of my friends, but I think you and I talked about this the other night, that I don't really remember seeing a preview for the movie or really knowing what the movie was about. I just knew that Elder Barge's The Rhythm of the Night song was from this movie, and because that was so, you know, it was, it was such a big song and a song that I liked, and maybe it was, they featured some of it in the video, I don't remember, because MTV was big back then, uh, when they actually played mu- music videos on music television, but, uh, so I think that's why I went to see it, not really knowing what it was. Um, and I can't really say that it was like the greatest movie I ever saw as a kid, but I, I mean, it stuck with me. I mean, there's very iconic moments of the movie, but I don't think I've watched this movie in its entirety probably since I was, you know, maybe I saw it on cable after that, but it wasn't one that I owned or anything like that, uh, back in the day, but I've heard the references, especially in the last Probably in the probably more so in the last twenty years of different people that I that I knew that used like who's the master and kiss the converse you know just those iconic lines uh, and then so so to actually sit down and watch it last week I really enjoyed it um, not didn't remember most of it um, so it was kind of like watching it with fresh eyes but it 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 for what it is it is fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, that is a great way to put it. Yeah, because really, and and you think that it really is a comedy, and it's it doesn't take itself too seriously. And if you can watch it with that perspective, you can really enjoy it more. You can't take it, and I think because the first part of it seems to be more serious, even though it's kind of goofy serious. But then once it kind of, once you meet Eddie Arcadian and Shogun, like those are the most cartoonish characters you're gonna have in any kind of movie. And so once you kind of accept that, that, okay, it's like a live action cartoon, you know, then, then you can just kind of let that wash over you and just enjoy it from there. So, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it's a lot of fun. I'm, you know, and then my wife, you know, we talked about our wives joining us for this one. So she was going to watch it and we started it again last night and just watching the first 30 minutes again, having just watched it two days, two days ago, I was like, oh man, this is so great. Uh, so I'm glad this is actually one that I purchased a couple of months ago, knowing we were going to do it for the podcast because it was like super cheap on Vudu, like the digital version was like five bucks or you know buy three for for ten dollars something like that. So uh, I'm glad I bought it because I'm going to be watching it uh, a lot more now that I've seen it more recently. I, I had this on on uh, VHS and then had it on DVD. Okay, uh, and got rid of when we moved recently. I purged a lot of uh, right. A lot of movies, and I, I got rid of it at that point. It was like, oh, if I watch it, I can. If I want to watch it, I can watch it digitally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I owned it on both formats, 
And uh, like I said, I've watched it. I showed it because I'm a, a good parent, unlike myself. I showed it to my daughter uh, and had her watch it. She was not impressed. Right. Yeah. And, and I will warn. This should be our warning to the public right now. If you do watch it, which we would encourage you to to mm-hmm. do, uh, there are some cringeworthy uh, oh, moments yes. Oh, yes. Uh, that occur uh, in the movie um, concerning probably some some racially insensitive uh, language and right. actions. Right. Uh, by, by some of the, the characters. Right. It's definitely uh, not PC for today's audiences, for sure, which most 80s movies we've watched have some of that in there every, you know, at some point. But, uh, but yeah, my daughter, I watched it on Saturday afternoon, and my daughter was here, uh, and I watched it in the living room, so she kept coming in like, what are you watching? Like, she would hear the music, or she'd hear, like, the goofy, the goofy Asian friend that's Tommy Tommy yeah Tommy yeah Tommy Chu I think or something like that Tommy Chu yeah yeah so he when he's making all the the loud screaming noises when he's fake fighting or whatever she would just like what are you watching what is this and so and then I would just start laughing she'd hear me laughing at a different scene so she wasn't going to sit down and watch it but uh, she did see bits and pieces and then last night when we were watching it again and Vanity's song Seventh Heaven came on she kind of peeked in the in the living room and she was like is this real music like what do y'all do you, no. Is this something that you enjoy? We're like, no, we don't, but we're going to watch it anyway. <laughs> oh, that song is terrible. Yes. All right, so do you know much about the pre-production and how this movie actually came to be? Uh, I think I'll remember it as you start uh, talking about it. I know the budget was really small. Yeah. And uh, I know some of the casting um, choices of who wanted to play uh, different right. roles who was considered for different roles. Yeah. I know, I know uh, uh, Billy Blanks, the Tybo guy, mm-hmm. was up for the, the, the lead role. Um, I saw some some writings that, that uh, uh, pre-Lawrence Fishburne, when he went by Larry Fishburne, right. that he, he um, tried to convince uh, Barry Gordy to cast him in the role. Uh, I saw some things about Wesley Snipes being considered because right. he had martial arts uh, uh, background. And all of these people, because Wesley Snipes would not have been a big movie star at the time. No. Would not been a big, so they still would have come pretty cheap. Uh, but even though, even with them, though, I think they probably went with the unknown uh, because he probably, he probably was dirt cheap. Oh, and yeah. Oh, for sure. With a $7 million budget, uh, um, I'm sure they had to... Uh, it, I mean, it's largely unknown people. I mean, Vanity, you know the name from Vanity 6 and from mm-hmm. Print. Right. But other than her... Um, Eddie Ar- uh, the actress plays Eddie Arcadian. I don't remember him from anything. The uh, Cindy Lopper wannabe. Yeah, I've seen her in things since, since then. then. You're right, right. But but prior to that, no. Uh, and then you know they got a bunch of kids running around. Yeah, half fighting, half breakdancing. <laughs> yeah, different points in the movie that I'm sure they didn't have to pay much to. So um, that's about it. Uh, tell me, tell me more. How did okay. This- yeah, we'll probably spend a lot of, we'll probably talk a lot more about the casting than anything else because there wasn't a whole lot of behind the scenes trivia on this one. But I did find a really good article that gave a lot of the backstory of how it got started. So there's going to be a lot of exposition, but I think it was the best way to kind of tell the story. So there's a scene early in the film that features a variety of New Yorkers at the screening of Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon. You got bikers, breakdancers, brawlers, and a young man known as Bruce Leroy. Uh, watching, shouting, and even fighting along with the martial arts classic before it's all broken abruptly by the meanest, prettiest, baddest mofo low down around this town, the Shogun of Harlem. As cartoonish and wonderful as that scene may be, it was based on an actual screening of the Bruce Lee film that screenwriter Louis Vanasta, or Louis, or Louis Vanasta attended with his then-girlfriend on the 10th anniversary of Bruce Lee's passing in 1983. He recalls it like the Rocky Horror Picture Show where everybody was dressed in those kung fu suits and shoes. They were carrying on mock fights in the aisles, and it was a lot like the scene in the movie, he said. They all knew the words to the movie. They were all saying the words out loud. And he looked at his girlfriend and said, are you seeing what I'm seeing? And she said, I think I'm seeing what you're seeing. So what they saw, so what they saw became the inspiration for his next screenwriting project. The for- he was actually a former fame dancer, and he'd already written two screenplays that were very serious dramas, one of which earned him a Writers Guild of America fellowship. This time, however, he was inspired to write for the stage. 
He actually told his girlfriend that he saw the Kung Fu as dancing in a quote-unquote hilarious Broadway musical. But thankfully, she saw a different vision. <laughs> so already, he was trying to make this into a Broadway musical. So uh, so anyway, so they were trying to come up with names for the for the characters. And he was trying to think of friends of his from Brooklyn. He said, Leroy. And she said, yeah, Bruce Leroy. And he was actually reading Shogun, the Shogun novel and thought, okay, it's Bruce Leroy and the Shogun of Harlem. I'm going to make it a Brooklyn Harlem thing. Six weeks later, it was written. The Kung Fu movie structure was obvious. He said it was one of the easiest things he had ever written. So now he had the movie theater scene, a hero who was teased for being different, a tough bad guy from the other side of town, and the classic hero's journey before realizing that what he sought was right in front of him the whole time. The rest of the story came from Vanasta's own multiracial background, and he describes himself as one of these guys who's always floating on the periphery of all these cultural tribes. That's evident from the concept of a black man obsessed with Bruce Lee's talents, philosophies, and style, as well as secondary characters, which I know is Ron's favorite scene, of the three jive-talking Chinese <laughs> dumb-sum-goy employees who spend their time on the street lip-syncing to uh, Motown music. So he said he was very cognizant of the culture swapping that went on. I always thought it was funny. In this particular case, you had these black and Hispanic guys who had embraced the Chinese hero. You'd walk through Chinatown and you'd see Chinese guys breakdancing. It was New York, but it was also my particular eye for this kind of cultural phenomenon of the culture swapping. I was friends with guys like Mario Van Peoples at the time. We were all sort of part. We were all sort of part of a little group. We always talked about those black exploitation films. There was always that dialogue, and I went, "But they're all bad guys. They really should be a young black kid superhero type figure who kids can look up to with positive aspirational thing." So he wrote the screenplay to be his directorial debut, although his version wouldn't have been so over the top as, as the movie is now. After finishing the screenplay in six weeks, he took, he took it to his agent, which they took four weeks to sell it to a producer named Suzanne DePasse, who brought Motown into the loop. The next thing Vanasta knew, he was on a flight to Los Angeles to meet with Barry Gordy. After spending, spending a few weeks living at Gordy's Bel Air estate, Vanasta moved into a place with director Michael Schultz so they could begin rewriting. The writer's version would have differed mostly in style as a Shogun character would have been a tough dude from Harlem, not a guy wearing shoulder pads and those awesome 80s glasses. <laughs> but he says he looks back on the film and admits that it might not, have, might not have had the same success and cult following without those changes, but he still knew he's, he had a good idea. So, uh, so that's kind of the, the early, early stages of it. So, which I think is interesting. It, it gives you a different perspective of the movie for sure. Knowing that's some of that is from his own upbringing and cultural perspective. So, well, what I want to know is if from the original screening or from the rewrites, and I don't know if you remember this part, but when they're in that movie theater, right. And the, and the, the beginning of the fight. Yes. Out, yes. And he says, "Hey, you two guys, come down. You know, come down and, get, and you know, get some if you want right, some." Basically. Right, right. And the one big tough guy is basically wearing a pink sports bra. I don't uh, know what that was about. It was a tank top that okay. right under his breasts, did not cover his <laughs> stomach at all, and was skin tight across him. And I'm like, in what era? Right. Was that a tough thing to wear? What era was the tough biker guy wearing right. a pink sports bra? But did you notice the transvestite that he was yes. with? <laughs> no, no, that, the transvestite was with the Asian guy. Okay, okay. Who, who slams his popcorn right. down? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. The two, the two biker guys that go walking down the road are sitting together. Right, right. Also okay. sitting right next to each other, breaking all kinds of man code about <laughs> sitting right next to each other in the movie theater. You can always skip a seat. Right. That theater was not full by any stretch of the imagination. No, you no. Skip the seat, and you were both large guys, but. The pink, uh, way too tight and short to be a tank top <laughs> that he was wearing. Right, kind of took away from the I'm a tough guy. Yeah. Um, well, I think I think I read I, I might be down on my notes too that all of the costumes were actually from a Broadway with somebody who's used to doing Broadway, not not movies. So that may have something to do with it. I don't know. It was for a dancer much smaller than him, which which him into. Which would explain a lot. I'm sure.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So uh, one interesting story I saw about this was just before shooting was scheduled to begin, the edict came down that they needed to cut the budget by $2 million or the film was not going to be made. So director Mike Schultz and the writer Louis Vanasta rewrote the film, eliminating some of the more complex action sequences that were planned. There would be no rewrites once the movie went into production, they were told. But one of the stories is Vanasta fell asleep on the hotel bed and Schultz pressed a button on the computer, which accidentally deleted 40 pages of the script. When Vanasta woke up the next morning and realized what happened, they spent the whole day recreating material from what they could remember. Well, that's one good way to make some script edits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a big chunk. You lose 40 pages. I mean, most... Uh, I want to say, like, for a movie that's it's not even a full two-hour movie... I think like 75 pages, I think, is what I think I most movies. I yeah. think that's about half, yeah. Yeah. So I think most movies, could say, are, are under 100 pages. So, yeah, that's a, that's a big old chunk. So, and then uh, talking about the budget, I think you were, you were telling my wife about this earlier, that the big chunk of the budget was spent reportedly $1 million on the video equipment for the Seventh Heaven set that featured the huge video walls. And one day, Diana Ross visited the set and asked if she could buy it for her next tour, which it seems she did. Interesting. And then one of the biggest and most expensive hurdles it faced was securing the rights to the Bruce Lee footage that was used in the movie. They were fortunate they were able to get the rights because there was no contingency plan in place. So they couldn't, you know, use a different... I mean, Bruce Lee is probably the most famous person you could get for those kind of scenes. So to get somebody else and try to make him like Bruce Lee really wouldn't have worked, I don't think. All right, so uh, so, we t- so you talked about casting. So as you mentioned, Lawrence Fishburne and Wesley Snipes lobbied hard for the role of Leroy Green. Mario Van Peoples also auditioned. Denzel Washington is said to audition for both Leroy and Shonuff. Yeah, I, I read that as well, and I, I don't... I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm throwing a flag on that. I, I don't think <laughs> Denzel walked in competing against um, any of those people you just named. Denzel right. did not go in and compete against uh, Mario Van Peebles mm-hmm. and Billy Blanks. Right. And uh, and what's our star guy's name? Ty, Ty Mac? Yeah, Ty um, Mac, yeah. And lose out on a role. Right. Now, he, now maybe he auditioned and, and they, didn't, they couldn't pay him what he was going to what they were going to pay him. I, right. I, I don't know. I just, I've I, never seen that in any kind of Denzel's bio stuff where that came right. up. I think it might've been somewhere so they called him. Hey, I don't know. And they're like, Hey, you audition. Nah, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just, I'm calling foul on that. Um, I do know that, um, the fight choreographer, me being the MMA fan, that right. I am, the right. fan, Ron Van Cleef, mm-hmm. uh, who, whose, whose name, and he was in a bunch of black exploitation films in the 1970s. But his name is the Black Dragon. Mm-hmm. Uh, was the fight coordinator for this? Okay. And and, and Ron Van Cleef um, actually fought in some of like the early UFC fights, like UFC one and two, like those right, early fights right. that were in the weight classes and things right. of that nature. And he was also the trainer um, personally, I and mean, maybe that that was the connection for uh, Ty Mac. He was his like he was already training with him. Right. Right. Um, and, and in fact, Ty Mac was a referee in a couple of early UFC fights, like UFC 7 and 8, maybe mm-hmm. 8 and 9. He's the referee in the ring, you know, directing the action. So you have to really know, you have to know your stuff in order to be able to do that. Like you and I oh, can yeah. go into the ring and, <laughs> and just do that. Right. Um, you know, you have to be well versed in different in different kind of things. And, and um, he was far enough along in training with Ron Van Cleef that he was able to... To, to do them. Now, this, of course, would have been after 
the oh, movie yeah, yeah. they were doing those things. That was uh, more in the nineties. Right. Uh, well, that's yes. cool. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so that's cool. I mean, that. Yeah, he definitely would have done that after this. But I did read because of the same stuff about that he was already training uh, with that same that the 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 style of martial arts that he uses in the movie was exactly what he was trained to do. So, um, but yeah. So, uh, and we'll talk. We'll get back into Bruce Leroy. But do you know of any of the names that were thrown out that were that possibly auditioned for Shonuff? Um, well, I'm going to stop you for just a second. second. He, you said he the things in the movie, he's what he trained to do. So he trained to get the glow? Well, no. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Is that what you're I'm saying, saying this. No, I said the style of martial arts he was doing. So, yeah. No, I think uh, the glow. I'm not sure if the glow was something that can actually be attained. So Did they let their soul glow? Different movie. Okay. But go back. That was episode two. Me and Rhonda coming to America. Go back and listen to that one. <laughs> so one of my, another one of my favorite episodes, but. Uh, so yeah, for the considered for the role of Shonuff, a couple of names we may know is Jim Brown, Fred right. Williamson, Billy D. Williams, and Carl Weathers. And again, it has to be a budgetary issue. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Because while I love the actor who who plays Shonuff, who oh, yeah. was escaping me. Uh, yeah, uh, Julius uh, Julius Carey. Julius Carey, who has a special place in my heart. And why does he have a special place in my heart, Tim? Because he was on an episode of Boy Meets World. He's on multiple episodes of Boy Meets World. He played <laughs> Angela's father in right. the military. Right. Anyone listening right now? Yes, that is. And the first time I saw him on there and heard his voice, I went, "Wait a minute, that's show enough." And my <laughs> wife said, "No, it's not." And so I went to the Google and looked it up. And went, "Oh yes, it is." Yep, yep. That's that's show enough. Um, so yes, he's on a few episodes of Boy Meets World. Yep. So uh, I won't go in read everything that I have about Time Mac, you know, getting the lead role. But um, one thing that I we know is that he was not an actor at all. He was, you know, totally committed to martial arts and, and that was what his life was. And so I guess he was about to turn 18 and was thinking about, you know, what am I going to do after this? Because I guess there wasn't a whole lot for him to do coming out of those competitions and things as a teenager. But uh, Ron Van Cleef, I think you mentioned, was the stunt coordinator for the film, and he was already training with him. And I think his mom was actually the dance choreographer as well um, for the movie. So he had multiple people that were telling him about the movie. He says, well, I'll just go audition. And he actually thought that they were just going to hire him based on his martial arts ability. So he, was, he wasn't even going in thinking about acting. He was just going to go in and like do you know some kicks and you know kind of show his martial arts athleticism he said he walked into a room that was like two feet by two feet was handed a piece of paper with all these lines on it and told him to read and he was like freaking out like i don't know how to act at all but i guess it came down really to him and as you said billy banks were was who they're really kind of going for but something about his innocence and him you know uh kind of that uh, soft-spoken innocence and kind of, you know, not really sure about himself. They kind felt, the yeah, naive. right, uh, the naive, yeah. They felt like that was really who Bruce Leroy was, so he could, they could use that to kind of, in, and coach him through the filming process and get more, you know, more of who he really was instead of trying to have Billy Banks, you know, try to act that way. So, uh, I thought it was pretty interesting. So, but yeah, but he... But the flip side of that is, uh, who said Julius Carey, he was he had no martial arts experience, but he would been right. he'd been acting. So uh, he was. They were kind of polar opposites, where one had all this martial arts background, the other one had none. And so uh, they 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 had some interesting stories, or there were some interesting stories about them behind the scenes, because uh, I guess Time Mac liked to, you know, show off his skills around Carey, and Carey didn't like it, so it just made him, you know. Even you know, even more mad, which I guess worked in the final film as well. So, sure. but uh, but I mean, would, would you? I mean, the acting is not great, but I guess Time Mac wasn't too bad. I mean, thinking about the other actors, it would have been a different film, I think, with somebody else in that role. So absolutely, in, in either one of those roles, yeah. Um, because uh, Shonuff had to be. Like for it to become this cult following of his, that has to be an over the top. Oh yeah, you know the 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 look on his face, like the which is really almost like a Popeye kind of look, yeah. like <laughs> partially like closed right. and right. his ankle, like 
like I'm not sure a more accomplished and serious actor would go that far right. into the right. campus, which you which you have to do. And Timac, like you said, throughout the movie looks surprised, shocked, <laughs> right. you know, innocent, naive to everything yeah. that's going on. Like you actually kind of buy all that from yeah. I mean, he there. Yeah, there's definitely some scenes where it's like, okay, that's not really good acting. But at the same time, I don't think they they didn't overload him with a lot of emotions or a lot of heavy dialogue. I mean, really, he's really more there just to kick and you know just do his martial arts things, um, you know, and recite you know the principles of kung fu or you know Bruce Lee's principles or whatever. So um, I think it worked. But yeah, I agree. Uh, Carrie's performance was fantastic, and even uh, the screenwriter was saying that um, he loved watching Carrie's per- performance. He said, uh, especially the anger, he's never happy, so he's constantly expressing that hostility, and that's what makes his character so fun. Rather than a serious, evil, mean guy, he's funny to watch. Funny to watch him get angry with his big ego and that's part of the thing with the with the movie. You're able to laugh and enjoy the good guys and the bad guys, all of the characters, which is true because Eddie Arcadia, you know, the two bad guys, Shogun and Eddie Arcadia, they're so ridiculously goofy. You don't really hate them, but you know they're the bad guys. So you don't, you know, it's not it's not sinister evil. You know what I'm saying? They're just, you know, over the top characters. So let's talk a little bit about. Uh, Miss Laura Charles, which I thought was the most uh, soap opera name of all the characters. Very much. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, like you, I'm, I I had a friend that was like a super vanity fan as well. Uh, one of my friends from school, and uh, so, but I, you know, I wasn't that. I didn't really know who she was either, you know, uh, when it came out. But and she's not a fantastic actress, and I think this was actually one of her first movie roles, I think Barry Gordy had her for three films. So she did this one. And then if you want to watch another really bad movie, that's not as good as this one. Uh, Never Too Young to Die, I think is the name of it, with John Stamos. So, I, I've seen that. Yeah. And and it's, it's, unlike this one, it is not a bad movie that is fun to watch. No. It is just a bad movie. It is heavily, heavily cringeworthy. And then, of course, her probably most famous role is with Carl Weathers in Action Jackson. In 1988, and I actually I went to the theater to see that one, but I was a big Carl Weathers fan from watching the Rocky movies. So, uh, Predator, yeah. So, uh, but she she was the only person they wanted for this role. Uh, she was there was no nobody else they auditioned. So we mentioned a, cu- a couple other people in the movie: uh, Faith Prince, who had two small roles before she became the would be pop starlet Angela Faraco. So Glenn Eaton, who we talked about earlier, made his acting debut as Johnny Yu, not Johnny Chu, <laughs> Leroy's cocky but comically inept sidekick, uh, while a young Ernie Ray's Jr. helped beat up Shonuff's henchman. But uh, two, two blink-and-you-miss-it cameos that you may have may noticed, I'm sure you noticed, but William H. Macy played right. J.J., and I was like freaking out when he popped. I was like, oh my gosh, it's William H. Macy. Uh, I mean, his voice is so... You know, you. I mean, his voice is so uh, recognizable. And then a very young Keisha Knight Pulliam as the <laughs> youngest sister uh, of Leroy Green. So uh, who has two different names in the movie? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, you know, kind of on a sad note, some of the actors who made the film so special have died over the years. All of them far too early. Leo Brown, who played Leroy's younger brother Richie, passed away in 2012 at 41. Uh, Julius Carey died from pancreatic cancer in 2008 at age 56. And in 2016, Vanity died from renal failure. She was 57. So um, I didn't realize all those people had passed away. I remember Vanity passing away, but I didn't know about the others. But you had a, you were telling us about uh, Leo Brown. He has a very famous brother. Yes, uh, Master G from uh, Sugar Hill Gang. Right. Um, Everyone knows the song Rapper's Delight. Yep, yep. Master G. Uh, yeah, that's his little brother in the in the movie who uh, did not go on to do much, I don't think, uh, uh, after that. No, which I was surprised because he was one of the highlights of the movie for me. I thought he I thought he did really well with the part he was pretty, given. Pretty charismatic. Yeah. Uh, and uh, same thing with uh, 
with Johnny. I mean, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. He, he was pretty charismatic as well. I mean, mm-hmm. you could have spun the two of them off. Made, right. Uh, <laughs> Last Dragon, you know, showed up apprentices, uh, uh, but. Uh, yeah, didn't really see them in much of, of anything else. Now, Eddie, Eddie Reyes Jr., who is the young uh, uh, Asian, the youngest uh, student in the school, I guess, or at least the smallest, right, uh, has a lot of fight scenes. Of course, he has gone on. You and I have talked about this. To um, He was in the Ninja Turtle movies. Yeah. And is still, he and his father, Eddie Reyes Sr., who uh, has a brief cameo in the movie, and Eddie Reyes Jr. are very well-known Hollywood stunt people. Both right. of them very, very highly acclaimed to this day. And in fact, Eddie Reyes Jr. Uh, does training of uh, various martial arts and has been in the corners of uh, different UFC fighters uh, who he has been training. And then he actually goes to their fights and is in their corners to help them during the fights. So uh, both of them are still actively involved, both in Hollywood mm-hmm. and martial arts yeah yeah all right so we talked a lot about character we didn't get into all the you know we didn't deep dive too much but was there a favorite character for you or anyone that stood out to you that really made the movie for you oh, show enough which is, why I, <laughs> I, I is the funnest character right uh, in this movie of course uh bruce leroy is the is our hero mm-hmm. and saves the day but the just the over the top Every, everything that he's wearing, everything that he says, mm-hmm. like you said, he's not a a martial arts trained guy. Right. So taught him enough that he does. He's I think he's a you know, kind of a tall, lanky mm-hmm. uh, guy, and so because it's better because his moves are not refined. So he's just like all elbows and knees <laughs> and lanky, yeah. lanky ankles of yeah. things coming that you know where. Whereas a, a more trained person is very tight movements, not wasting any, right. any movement. He's very wild in his actions. And that just goes to the character. Mm-hmm. It, it, that plays uh, perfectly. Like you said, the, the sunglasses, which are basically, you know, ripped off their 80s sunglasses with just the lines. Yeah. Which, you can through, which are really old 1950s comic book x-ray spec glasses, <laughs> you know, uh, that, that didn't do anything. Right. People would hold Incense from a comic book, uh, and then came back into fashion somehow in the eighties. Uh, just everything about that character, like you said, the the, the outlandish garb, mm-hmm. which you laugh at, but really it was nineteen seventies funk band yeah. uh, garb because <laughs> that's things that people wore on stage and stuff, just crazy costumes, but with a slight kung fu theme yeah. to them. So I mean, that character is just like you said, the the, the classic. You know who's the master showing up, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, you know kiss my converse. Yeah, and you know those lines. I mean, you see those on t-shirts. Uh, you could say them. You could just say it. You could be in a crowd waiting to get on the bus. And go, who's, <laughs> who's the master? master? And people, not everybody, but there will be people that will go show enough. Yeah, or and someone will be a smart aleck and go, I am. <laughs> yeah, uh, guaranteed. Yeah. Um, what I thought was yeah, what I thought was interesting about his character, um, and even going to the, the going to the point about him not really being, you know, as good a fighter as Tamak was, but he's got that trope of having the entourage, and you know he never really fights. You know, it's always like you know his goons fight for him. You know, I guess he fights a little bit in the, in the movie theater scene in the beginning, but when he comes into the dojo where uh, Bruce Leroy has his class going on. He's like, come on, ladies, y'all, y'all, you know, y'all beat him up. Like he's, he doesn't really fight anybody, you know, until like the very end. So, uh, which ones again is probably smart. They probably, they probably had to cut a lot of that stuff down, um, for that. So yeah, I think, I think show enough is what is, he makes the movie. I mean, once again, and it's probably good that he was as outlandish as he was because Mac was so reserved. You had to have that yin and yang that polar opposites to really play off of each other because if they were both you know that intense or that charismatic it would it really wouldn't i don't think it would have had the same kind of dynamic that it that it does so um but i funny enough the character that stood out to me a lot is eddie arcadia and i just think because once again it's so cartoonish but even like some of the scenes with him it's like 
he and and I think he was a TV actor before he did this movie, and you can kind of see that because it a lot of his scenes feel like a glorified TV movie. I mean, it's just the the writing and the acting, but he's so over the top. But he just made me laugh over and over again, you know. Uh, and I think just because he and I was reading about the notes about him, he said it, the 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 role was really more straight laced, and he wanted to push it as far as he could take it to be over the top. And every time Barry Gordy would tell him, it seemed like Barry Gordy directed this movie more so than Schultz did, but he said Barry Gordy would tell him to to tone it back, tone it back. And he said, but he kept always pushing that line to be as zany and crazy as he could. So, but, uh, but yeah. And we're glad glad that he did. And we still don't know what's in the tank. It was a flesh eating uh, fish, I think is what I read. But yeah, and, and the funny thing, when that scene first started, I was like, that comes into play later, right? And it never does. Like, I'm expecting someone to get eaten by the fish at some point in a fight later in the film, and you never see it, so. Right, like when, he, when he's trying to drown Bruce Leroy in the thing of water, it would yeah. have made sense for him to have, have for Eddie to have gotten there and dumped it. Or right, right. got to get rid of it. That's where he got rid of it, and he dumped it in there. Yeah. Some, some kind of payoff, but yeah, it just disappears. Yeah. Now, did you notice when... Eddie Arcadia accidentally dunked, dunks his head in the fish tank, and he comes back up. You see the red mark above his eye. Did you notice that? Yes, and the toupee gone. Yeah. So the red mark above his eye was real. He said during that take, he got pushed down too far, and it's actually a pipe that made bubbles, that made the bubbles, and he actually hit his head on the pipe. And so when it came back up, he actually that was a real gash in his head from <laughs> from an accident on set. He said he was very fortunate because it, he said, you know, a few like 10, 10 centimeters difference. And it probably would have, you know, he probably poked his eye out or, whatever, you know, damaged his eye. So when he came out of the tank, I was like, did, did the fish bite him? Has it had to get the red bark in his head? And then I then I saw the, the, the story. So that was interesting. So let's talk about the director, Michael Schultz. So he's actually still directing, doing TV. He's directed episodes of Arrow and Blackish. Uh, but he had more than a decade of experience behind the camera. He had directed Cooley High, Car Wash, and Bustin' Loose. Uh, so I think he did a pretty good job with the movie. Sure. Well, I mean, the movie is what it is. No one's winning awards. Yeah. But um, like you said, and then when when someone's name is attached to something, because it was that was not really the eighties were not really an age where people's you know right. names were attached to things. So unless you I, were that always stood out to me as well. Barry yeah. Gordy's the last dragon. Right. It wasn't yeah. just the last dragon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I always figured he had a little bit more of a hand in, mm-hmm. in some of the direct, directing, like you said earlier. Uh, so, but no, he Schultz. I didn't realize Schultz was still uh, directing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a couple of shows that that uh, I have watched. Yeah, exactly. So I thought that's pretty good. He's. Still in the business. But yeah, like I said, Barry Gordy was very much involved. I think he said he was on set just about every day, and he was always bringing Motown artists with him to the set. So I'm sure all the actors got to meet anybody who was anybody in the music business, at least with Motown back then. Stevie Wonder, uh, Michael Jackson, I'm sure. Uh, Diana Ross, which we talked about, she was on set at one point. So uh, Interesting note, uh, there are no deleted scenes for this movie. Because everything that was shot, they used for the film. So there was nothing got cut out. So uh, which is pretty evident. <laughs> there's probably there's probably some scenes that could have been cut or trimmed a little bit more. So yeah, I mean the movie's already fairly short. If, if they had trimmed, but uh, yeah, I remember reading that, and that's I mean that's unheard of. Yeah, yeah. For that to happen with a with a movie where they they used everything that they had, but maybe, you know what? Maybe they're just a model of efficiency, and they yeah. can show other people how to. Uh, how to get get that done? I, I do want to point out before I forget that my wife did note that if this movie was made today, uh, instead of the little brother calling uh, Bruce Leroy weird and mm-hmm. uh, something wrong with him, he would very clearly be on the spectrum. Right, right. Uh, if if it made this movie uh, today, uh, and uh, they would probably have a little bit of a different vibe to it. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. All right. So let's talk about favorite scenes. You have any any specific scenes that stand out for you? Oh, the globe! <laughs> I, I remember vividly yeah. the movie theater with the glow. First, when showed up, hands started glowing. Yeah, like, what? Right, he's got 
such kung fu power that his hands can glow. Right. And then, and I, I mean, I can see it so clear in my mind right now on the last scene when he raises Leroy up and he's got that completely different look on his face when he, when he says, I am, mm-hmm. and he's got that little half grin and just a different look in his eyes. Like I, I could <laughs> picture that so clear right now. Right. Those scenes, like I remember like almost jumping up like, Oh, <laughs> the whole body go. He's got the whole body glow. That's right. crazy. Right. Um, uh, in fact, I have a few, I, I did not, but not too long after that, a karate studio opened up in the town, neighboring my town, okay. in West Virginia, and has some friends who may have uh, been taking karate lessons, uh, and I think they thought they were going to be able to get some kind of glow happening, and it did not work. <laughs> it's just a movie, folks. It's just a movie. Yeah, I remember the glow, the glow scene, that was like, it came... I mean, I know they referenced it in the beginning of the movie, but it's not something that's like heavily reminded as the movie goes on. So when it happened, it's like it is almost out of left field. Like, what? Why? How, you know, why is that even needed? But I mean, like once again, watching it again now, it's like, oh, I get it. That was what he would. I mean, it's clear at the very beginning of the movie. It's just not reiterated as the movie goes on. But uh, but you know, even and even for a you know what do you say, seven million dollar budget movie. It's not the greatest graphics, but it still looked cool. You know what I'm saying? Especially for, you know, a bunch of kids watching a Kung Fu, Kung Fu movie. And I would, you know, we call it low budget. I would probably call it more of a B movie and not that every B movie is bad. Uh, but it has that kind of B movie vibe to it. So That's, uh, that's a good point. And for, for a B movie, a $7 million budget is pretty good. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but yeah, so for me, let's see, favorite scenes for me. Um, I do like the last battle. I, I enjoyed the uh, the the montage of Bruce Lee films when Vanity you know shows in the video. Um, but I think because up at that point that was probably the best martial arts fight scenes we had seen in the whole movie because everything else was so uh, was pretty pretty amateur. But that final battle scene. Uh, in the club at the end where you had all the students and, you know, Eddie Ray's Jr. doing his thing to the to the henchmen. Uh, that was a pretty exciting uh, fight scene. You know, even now it still had some good, uh, had some good, good moments. So I enjoyed that a lot. Uh, but yeah, I think the movie theater scene at the beginning when Shonuff's first appearance on screen, I think is probably one of my favorite, it's probably my favorite scene. Uh, and, you know, just... Every time he does his 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 rant is is so awesome, uh, but yeah. It, then, there's one other scene. So I mean, if that was favorite scene, but there's another memorable scene that yeah. just always makes me cringe. Just the vanity seventh heaven song <laughs> yeah. coming down the the stage. Yeah. it's just it's just so bad. Now, and I thought about this watching it the second time because when she's having that scene with William H Macy JJ. And the the says like you have thirty seconds, you got fifteen seconds, you got five seconds, and she leaves what seems to be off stage getting her hair hair done. She's got five seconds, and then next thing she's on a platform coming from the ceiling. So does that mean that the where she was getting her hair done was in the top of the building where she just walked over and got on a platform? So that's certainly what it seems like. Yeah, so now we know. On Diana Ross's tour, where her hair uh, was, it was up at the top above the stage. Right, so. right. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, so we talked about favorite scenes. You know, what are the most? And I think this is this works for this movie, especially. What What's the most cringeworthy scene that you can remember? That's the most cringeworthy. That's what cringeworthy. That, every time that's, I just like it's hard for me to watch that scene. Yeah, it's 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 just really it's um, bad. The song yeah, is bad. The performance is bad. Everything it, about it. It's too and then, long. <laughs> and then for different reasons, the um, Leroy trying to pretend that he is a yes stereotypical, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, the Asian guys are trying to pretend to be stereotypical Asian guys and mm-hmm. he's trying to pretend to be a stereotypical black guy and then, and then they want to be more stereotypical black and they want him to teach them. They assume he knows how to shoot crabs because he's black. Right. Right. So he pretends he knows how to shoot crap. And then instead they're playing, um, 
hopscotch. Uh, he's like, yeah, this is how we play. This is how we shoot craps. Uh, <laughs> you know, you want to be like me, right? And they're like, oh, okay, okay. I mean, that's and certainly not flying today. If that's no. made on TV, movie, anything about there's, you know, um, some going too far there in, in those scenes. Uh, that's a little outdated and a little hard to watch. Right, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's several cringeworthy cringeworthy scenes. Uh one that it it makes me laugh and it's just it's it's a really it's real short. But after he has the fight scene with the goons that are trying to take um vanity and he loses the medallion that supposedly was left by Bruce Lee and he's going back and you see him running through the through the, through the alley and there's like a piece of a car like like uh you know the side above a hubcap or whatever and it's like way over like next to the building and he's kind of looking around and he leans over and he like he picks up that piece of like scrap metal but he doesn't even he like he touches it and it moves like an inch and then he moves away and I'm like were you really looking under there were you just touching something <laughs> it's like give the man a little bit better direction so yeah, I didn't even notice that. It, part yeah, it, I I noticed it the first time they were watching it again last night. I saw it again. I was just like, "That is so ridiculous." Um, <laughs> but yeah, that and then the other cringeworthy, which is probably more the writing than the uh, than the act. Well, the acting didn't help either. But when he's having the discussion with Vanity in the car about he doesn't even know uh, what kind of canvas he needs and the paintbrush. And she's like, what are you talking about? The art of making love. Like, he has no idea what he's even talking about. And it's just like, oh, man, this is so, so bad. So, uh, yeah. Will you teach me some moves? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, the very end, yeah. He comes back in. Yeah, the the love story was, was not as well fleshed out as it could have been. But, you know, but you knew as soon as they saw each other, it was like, well, this is the love interest and they'll be together at the end. So there wasn't, you know, it's pretty predictable from the beginning. So, so, uh, now we're going to start wrapping things up, but, uh, some posters for the film featured a very long text preamble. Would you like to hear it? I I, I have read it and it is crazy long. (laughs) Here we go. He's a martial arts master who refuses to fight. He's a Bruce Lee fan. Who's so sure he's Oriental that he eats popcorn with chopsticks. His friends thinks he's too serious. His family thinks he's crazy. His enemies think he's no challenge, but he knows he's the last dragon. It's a great tagline. And only had to put it across like three posters <laughs> to get it all to, to, to fit on there. Yeah. Right. Uh, so Tymac uh, has done several interviews, I guess a couple years ago when they did the 30th anniversary of the Blu-ray, right. it, was, it was getting a lot more press. And so, um, he had this quote, and I thought it was good to share here on the podcast, and it says, The story mirrored not just Timac's own life experience, but also his views on the martial arts. And this is his, his quote, It is a true martial arts film because it represents martial arts. The message is what martial arts is about, that you can be the master of your life. I mean, you can go to UFC and just watch a fight. You can be a great fighter, but that doesn't make you a master. A master is somebody who is courageous who goes against their fears and is supportive of their community and is an authentic role model. That's what a master is. So that was a good quote. That's a very good quote. Yeah. So Yeah, and when last we saw him, only other thing I ever remember seeing him in was he's in an episode of A Different World. Right. Where he tried to date rape Freddy. And, uh, <laughs> and Dwayne, um, Dwayne Wayne has to um, fight him off, hold him off. Uh, he was on the baseball team. Right, and, uh, was the star on the baseball team, and they he ends up, I guess, getting kicked off, kicked out of school, whatever, over that. And uh, I thought we might start seeing him off because he's actually pretty good on that episode. Yeah, he did. Um, he did some other TV work, like he was on several other shows, you know, after the movie came out. So he he made his way in some TV shows. So he just never had another starring role, you know, like this one. So. My name is Laramie Wells, and I host a podcast called Moving Panels. On Moving Panels, we discuss movies and television shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. 
Join me and a wide range of guest hosts as we discuss the hits like Logan and The Dark Knight, as well as clear misses like X-Men Origins, Wolverine, and Green Lantern. New episodes drop every other Friday, and you can find us wherever you download your podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and we'll see you on the other side of the page. But of course, we can't talk about The Last Dragon without talking about the music. So, uh, of course, the music was supervised by executive producer Barry Gordy. Featured in the film is the DeBarge song Rhythm of the Night, written by Diane Warren. The song reached number three on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one on the Billboard R&B charts. The film's Richard Perry produced title theme was nominated for Worst Original Song at the 1985 Golden Raspberry Awards. And so was Vanity's song, Seventh Heaven, which I'm surprised uh, that didn't win for the worst song. So, but, yeah, uh, I mean, Rhythm, Rhythm of the Night is a, is a, is a smash hit. Yeah. I mean, it's a song you can't help but to sing along to anytime you hear it on the radio. Oh, yeah. But it is the only song on that movie that you listen to that is, uh, that is any good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's another song that I think is probably so bad that it's good, and it's the, you got the glow, the glow, you got the glow, you <laughs> whatever, but it's, it's right. not that it's an actual good song. Yeah. Uh, but Rhythm of the Night is a huge hit, and so I would have expected more from a Barry Gordy-produced mm-hmm. uh, movie with his name attached yeah. uh, for the soundtrack, but uh, didn't really come to fruition. And you were correct, you did reference earlier, I'm, I am pretty positive that in the rhythm of the night video there are a couple of different times where there are tvs and you see little clips mm-hmm. from the last dragon on those screens right um, not there's a, there's a lot of like choreographed dancing and things in that video as well but a couple of little times it's 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 referenced that way i believe right now we did we we, we briefly talked about it, i guess we're talking about music so the wannabe pop starlet uh, played by Faith Prince, and I can't remember her actual name in the movie, but I can't forget her actual name being Faith Prince, uh, because what kind of name, you know, she should have been a star with that kind of name, right, in the 80s. Um, but her songs, and of course she was patterned pretty much after a Cindy Lauper. Yeah, I thought they were trying to go for like a mash of like Madonna and Cindy Lauper kind of med- wedged together, but... Um, There's but, a Cindy Lauper look, but of far more probably risque. Yeah, right. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but she tells a story about when, you know, doing those songs, like she said, she worked with like the best in the business for all those music videos that they, you know, that they recorded. Um, And she said that Barry Gordy kept trying to get her to go like full time into music. He wanted her to be like the Cyndi Lauper of the, for the Motown records and she was like, no, I don't want to play. You know, it's fun to play this character. I really want to be more an actress. Um, so she didn't pursue it. But I was like, I didn't think, you know, she wasn't horrible. But it, she, yeah, she wasn't going to be a great star. But, you know, compared to the other songs on the soundtrack, like you said, Rhythm of the Night is the standout. I mean, that's the only song that's really any good. And, it, and some of the other movies, I mean, some of the other songs are cringeworthy because you know that a songwriter was given, okay, we're making this movie called The Last Dragon. Now... Here's some keywords you got to put: the glow, dragon, master, and so you know. <laughs> you hear these lyrics are like they're just they're, you can tell these guys have no idea what they're singing about, but they're trying to be so earnest with you know you've got that glow, and it's like, dude, you have no idea what you're singing about, no clue. So, uh, but yeah, good stuff. All right, so at the box office, so The Last Dragon was released on March 22nd, 1985. It opened at number four, being beat out by the number one movie that weekend was Friday the 13th, A New Beginning. Number two was Porky's Revenge, so the sequels were the thing at that point. And then number three, and those two movies opened the same weekend, and then Mask. Uh, with Cher, which was a big movie back then as well, uh, that was that was number three, but it had been out for a couple of a couple of uh, weeks, so it debuted at four. And the only other new release that movie was Baby, a Dinosaur Story. So, do you know Do you know what Baby, a Dinosaur Story was? Do you remember that? Uh, one? I do not, but I'm, yeah. I'm trying to think of. So, what would have happened is I wouldn't have been able to get into Friday the Thirteenth or Fourteenth because they were both rated R, <laughs> right? Um, so. And I would not have wanted to see, I'm sure, G-rated. Yeah, yeah. 
But the movie was it was a critical failure, but it's still considered a box office success, making $33 million against a budget of around $10 million. It has since become a cult classic. So currently on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got a 58% on the tomato meter with an 86% audience score. On IMDb, it's got 6.9 out of 10 from viewers, but it has no Metacritic score. So, Yeah, I think it's a movie that will... Those scores will probably go down over time. Yeah, yeah. Because it's a movie that our generation, who who was young when it came out, saw and loved. Mm-hmm. But I don't think... It, like Our daughter's generations are not going to care for this movie at all. No. So as, as we die off, yeah. as, as we go the route of baby a dinosaur... Yeah. And as I was watching the movie, I thought to I said, this is a great snapshot of the 80s. Like, this movie screams the 80s. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, because I think because it's so music-driven and, like I said, some of the fashion stuff and just, like, the music video, TV, you know, the TV show that talks about music videos. I mean, that's – our generation now doesn't know that. You know, music videos they see on YouTube, you know, they don't, they don't know an era where – the only way you could watch a music video was when it, when it possibly came on MTV. And I knew friends that like watched so much MTV, they could tell you when certain videos would come on because of how it was rotated. Like they knew that Thriller would come on every day at three forty-five in the afternoon on Tuesday or whatever that was. So, um, I think it's, a, I think if you want to show someone the 80, now maybe that's not, you know, it's probably a more, maybe more New York in the eighties, but, there are certain elements of this film that's very much tells you what, especially 1985, right smack dab in the middle of the 80s, um, kind of gives you a good snapshot, you know. I mean, of course, there are, more, there are other 80s, you know, Ferris Wheeler's Day Off is going to be in that category. Breakfast Club. Breakfast Club. But, right. That, that aren't just quintessential 80s movies. Right. But, like you said, Scream. Yeah. The 80s. Right. I, I, I know, I know, but I know exactly what you're saying. And yes, this, uh, this definitely fits right in there with those other ones. Yeah. So do you think there's ever been a thought of a sequel for The Last Dragon? I, anything that has ever made a dollar in Hollywood, <laughs> there has been a thought of a, a sequel. Yeah. So. Um, and the way things, the way there are, things are kind of brought back now. Uh, you could see, you know, the, the son of Shonuff. Right, versus, right. Versus, and it would have to change it, versus the daughter of uh, Bruce Le- Leroy right, and... and, uh, and um, uh, Princess Charles, what's her name? Yeah. Laura Charles. Laura Charles, that's it. And yeah. so it would have, or maybe just both daughters, but it would, uh, you know, you would have to do something uh, along those lines. Right. Uh, I did something I probably hope never happens. <laughs> yeah. But I also had no desire to um, see Cobra Kai. And as you know, I have discovered that recently and greatly enjoyed both seasons. I'm looking forward to season three. Oh, yeah. There's something. Something that I didn't know I needed in my life. Yeah, exactly. Like in my life, and now I'm like, why didn't I have this sooner? This right, fantastic. right. The, the screenwriter has wanted to do a sequel, of course, and nobody has really, you know, bit on that. Uh, and Timax Ty, said that he has been working with uh, writers in the last couple of years trying to write a sequel as well. He's got some ideas that he wants to do, but it hasn't got any traction. But, uh, of course, there's sequels and then there's reboots, which... <laughs> Which would you rather not see, a reboot or <laughs> or a sequel? So here's, here's the question: Can I get William H Macy back? Right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> listen, it's a spinoff. We're just going to talk about JJ. This is going to be JJ's movie. <laughs> um, so in in 2008, it was reported that Wu Tang Clan member and the Man with the Iron Fist director Raza RZA Riza Riza was working on a remake of The Last Dragon, and he was focused on landing Rihanna to play the part of Laura Charles. His pick for Bruce Leroy was Chris Brown, even after the singer assaulted Rihanna because he thought a good guy, quote-unquote, could serve as damage, playing a good guy would serve as damage control. In 2009, Rizza said that he and Samuel L. Jackson, who was reportedly cast to be the new Shonuff, were working with Sony and the Gordy family to tell a new version of the story, but he didn't believe the script was good enough. 
As recently as 2014, Rizza was still defending his desire to remake the cult classic. So Samuel L. Jackson way too old to pull off. Yeah. To pull off uh, show enough. Yeah. And I got to get you up on your Wu-Tang. I got to get you up on the Rizza. <laughs> ODB. Yeah. I expect the deck Raekwon the chef. Right. Now, I think last Halloween, I'm pretty sure Terry Crews dressed up as show the Shogun of Harlem uh, for some party. And there, were, of course, there were all kinds of rumors at that point. They're going to remake it. They're going to remake it. So I could see him in that role. Uh, I think he would he would do well. Uh, he he would have role. a lot of fun. Yeah. Because he, he would go over the top. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and, and Which is what the role needs right yeah um now terry's big and strong i don't know how flexible (laughs) he is for martial arts moves right right um but uh i mean i guess we could uh guess we could find out i'm trying to think of who else might be good who's got that more of that lanky uh like we could we could could bring out the dave chappelle uh-huh. Yeah, well, he's not as lanky as he used to be. Um, right. Him or Chris Tucker. Uh, I was thinking, and this this is this is to my own regret. Sterling K. Brown would probably want to do the role because he keeps wanting to do something funny because he plays such a serious role on This Is Us. But every movie that he's tried to be funny in, I have not liked him in it. So, uh, but he's got that lanky, tall build. Uh, but once again, he might be too old for that role as well. So, well, we're not casting it. So no, keep... no. And once again, I hope I hope they don't ever remake it because it's not going to be as good um, as the original. Um, yeah. Even as imperfect as the original is. <laughs> but, but how many things have we wished they wouldn't redo and they redid anyway? Yeah. At some point, and, at and, some point it will happen. Right. And dummies us have spent money to watch them. <laughs> and if they remake that, I will spend money to watch that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right, man. Well, that's going to wrap this one up. I appreciate you being on this episode. As always, it's a delight. So uh, I enjoyed this one. This was my this was my pleasure. <laughs> Who's the master, Tim? I am. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure which way you were going, so that's fine. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, we have a few ways for you to do just that. One way is to send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voice message to the Anchor app. You can find the link to leave a voice message in our episode show notes. If you do leave us a message, we may just use it in an upcoming mini-episode. Another way to reach us is through the new 80s Flick Flashback Podcast Facebook page, as well as our Movie Views Instagram. Also, be on the lookout for our next mini-episode. Each mini-episode offers some fun segments about the previous full episode, and we'll also introduce the next 80s Flick we'll be watching and covering in the next episode. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a 5-star rating, leave us a stellar written review, and go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you won't miss any of our upcoming episodes. No matter which podcasting platform you're listening to us on, be sure to read the episode show notes to find more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into this episode. That's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80s Flick Flashback.